from Job chapter 13, verses 20 through 24, chapter 14, 7 through 17. Only grant me two things, then I will not hide myself from your face. Withdraw your hand far from me, and let not dread of you terrify me. Then call, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply to me. How many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? For there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. Though its root grow old in the earth, and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake, and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be past, and that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands, for then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's very wet up here. It always is very wet up here when David Filson does a baptism. He really believes in that sacrament. It's a good thing. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Scott, and along with, with David, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Presbyterian, and uh, it's my privilege to uh, take us into the book of Job today for a few moments. But before I do that, I just want to invite you to, to take the black notebook and pass it down the row, record your attendance with us here, whether you're a guest or whether you're a longtime member. We'd love to just know that you're here. It's one of our ways of helping a big church feel smaller, and it helps us know a little bit better how we can serve you. So uh, a couple of uh, our, our key announcements this week uh, include, first of all, one that I'm really excited to announce uh, that our women are doing. CPC women are moving into Nashville with a series of mercy and justice-related forums. And uh, our forums at CPC are designed to pull together people who believe in Jesus and people who are curious about Jesus but, but, but may not identify as Christians and talk about things that matter to everybody and see what God does with that. And so this series of forums uh, for women is called Real Women, Real Issues, Real Hope. And the first one is going to be on September the 6th. Uh, all the details are there in your bulletin, but the subject will be uh, on human trafficking and how it impacts our city and how it impacts the world and what we can do about it. And then the second uh, uh, announcement is um, in reference to two Sundays from today, we're actually going to have our first annual Vision Sunday. If you've been here uh, for a while, you'll, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with our mission statement that we follow Christ and His mission of loving people and places and things to life. And so, this past Monday, 
uh, our leadership got together, elders, deacons, advisors, and we, uh, we put our anchor in the ground with a 20-year vision, which is essentially a plan or a strategy uh, of how we roll out that mission statement uh, for the next 20 years and, 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 God willing, beyond that. And so, if there is a most important Sunday to be here in the next year, I would say that it's going to be two Sundays from now. That doesn't mean skip church on Labor Day next weekend because Russ is going to preach and he's awesome and you all know that. Um, But two weeks from now, it's really important that we're all gathered here uh, to consider what God has put on the hearts of our leadership and and where we believe God's calling us as a church family. So, hope you can be part of that. Um, so, now let's, let's uh, dive into Job. You may notice that the sermon title and also the scripture that was just read is incongruent with what's in your bulletin. This is actually the third time uh, because of an interruption uh, and a violation of God's peace in the world that we have had to sort of make a last-minute audible and change the subject of, of the message in this series that we've We've been, been, you know, going through this summer. Now, this sermon this morning actually is compatible with the series we've been in, The Battle Within. It's just a change of plans. It just didn't seem pastorally appropriate this morning in light of the death of a child to uh, just gloss over that and, and, and talk about not lying, uh, which was really what the, what the message was about uh, before. Um, the reality is this, over uh, the years, and you know, Christ Presbyterian has been in existence, I think something just short of 40 years, but over the years, we have lost 15 children. Christ Presbyterian community has lost 15 children. Parents have buried their children 15 times in our community. And the Williams family is, is the most recent uh, of those untimely deaths. And, and so, today, what we're going to do in light of that, and in light of a funeral that will happen within the next two or three days, uh, is that we're going to look to our God. Because where else can we go, right? Um, but I think as we, as we look to Him, we'll find that He's a God who shares our tears. He's not removed. He's not aloof. He's, he's the furthest thing from being uncompassionate. He shares our tears. You know, this is the God who weeps at a gravesite before He brings the dead person up from, from death. But the other thing about God is He gets it because He has Himself buried a child. And, and, and so he is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And so the story in front of us has been historically known and understood as the suffering story, the story of Job. Job is a man of sorrows, you might say, acquainted with grief. Job is a victim of a terrorist attack. A group called the, the Chaldeans come and uh, essentially ruin his life as he knows it. And in the process of that attack, he loses his business, he loses his wealth, his property, uh, his health even. It, you know, he, he's afflicted you know, health-wise uh, with sores from head to toe, it says. And in the process, he also loses 10 sons and daughters in one day because of that awful, horrific attack. And to make matters worse, he becomes isolated in his grief because his closest friends, his three closest friends, who start out by showing up and comfort him, eventually get very uncomfortable with a God narrative that they can't control and they can't figure out. And so they try to put God in categories, 
and, 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 and deal with their own confusion and deal with their own struggle about mystery, and they start accusing Job and saying, all this stuff must have happened to you, not because there's anything wrong with God, but because there's got to be something wrong with you. You must have done something to bring this on yourself, Job. And, and, and on top of that, his wife person he knows the best, the woman who shares his bed, the woman who also lost ten children with him, instead of turning toward God as Job does, turns away from God and essentially declares herself to be an agnostic. And she says, curse God and die. I've had enough of God. To hell with God. And so out of this emerges two questions that have been asked by person after person after person throughout history and community after community after community. And the questions are, what does this say about true humanity? What does it say about Job? And then what does it all say about God? So we'll deal with those two questions here. First, what does this say about Job? And, and, and in saying these things about Job, what does it say about us? So remember, the backdrop of the, the Job story is unrelenting accusation from his friends about a hidden transgression that they can't quite figure out. They can't put a thumb on, but they're sure it's there somewhere. They've, they're sure that, that, that he's done something wrong because in their minds, in their minds, all suffering has to be cause and effect. And so, if you're suffering, Job, that means that God must be displeased with something you've done. And so, that's our story. We're sticking to it. And of course, this is deeply, you know, painful to Job, rubbing salt in the wounds, so to speak, because Job cannot think, as hard as he thinks and searches for a hidden fault, he can't find one. And, you know, if only Job's friends had had the story uh, about how a group of people came to Jesus and, and, and asked about a man who had been born blind. Was, was it the man who was born blind that, that, that committed a sin against God, or was it his parents? Which one was it? And Jesus sort of arches his back at the question and says, neither, neither. In this world, you will have trouble. You're in this world, your problems aren't going to disappear. It's not going to be easy. And I so love not only that Jenny Owens sang for us, but I, I so love what she just sang. Listen to these world, words. I will remember, Lord, the suffering that your love put, me, put you through. I will remember the suffering that your love put you through, and I will walk through the darkness if you want me to. Job's friends did not have that theology of mystery. You know, Jesus says about the man born blind, he was born blind so that a greater good would be accomplished through his affliction. You know, the best gifts that, gift that Job's friends gave him along the way is their presence, their sympathy, their tears, and their silence at the very beginning, and their willingness to, to allow their friend Job to sit in mystery and just let it lie and wrestle with it. That was the best gift that they could give him, is to show up and, and be quiet. But then when they started to turn on him, two unbelievable otherworldly virtues emerge out of Job in the context of being accused by his friends. One of those virtues is humility. 
You know, verse 23, it talks about how, you know, his response to the accusation of his friends was not to go to God and say, can you believe these people? Zap them. Set them straight, Lord. Instead, what, what Job does, if you can even imagine it, is he prays to God and he says, okay, God, if there's a kernel of truth in what they're saying about me, will you reveal that to me? And he says, how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgressions. You know, this is the lowest point in Job's life, and, and this question that he asks to God demonstrates how immensely superior his character is to the character of his friends. You know, his instinct in, in, in the hardest place of affliction that he's ever known is to invite invasive surgery from God on his soul if necessary, if in fact there is a hidden cancer, a silent killer in him. He's inviting God to perform surgery on his soul. You know, like the psalmist, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me. See if there's any offensive or, or, or restless way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You know, even more than Job wants relief, he wants God's face. He wants clarity that he and God are okay. You, know, you, you never really know the truth, do you? We never know the truth about what a person is made of until they suffer. And that's when the truth about, about what we are made of and what we're believing and what we're leaning on comes out. It's like the tea bag, you know. The, the, the tea bag can have an ugly exterior or a very nice, pretty exterior. But what's going to determine what's inside that exterior is the quality of the leaf of the tea. And you're only going to understand the quality of the leaf of the tea once you put it in hot water, and then what's inside comes out in the hot water, and it's either sweet and, and lovely and aromatic, or it's, it's offensive and it's, and it's uh, bitter. And, and, and so here you have Job and his wife. These are two tea bags, as it were. These are two human beings going through exactly the same circumstances, same loss, same life experience, same everything, entirely different um, seeping out when, when, when the heat is, is, is turned up in their lives. And when, when they encounter suffering, Job turns to God and says, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And, and, and Job's wife says, curse God and die. So there's this, this otherworldly humility that comes out of Job. But, but there's also a raw honesty. He's not pie in the sky. He's not all, you know, happy clappy. How you doing? Oh, fine. You know, praise the Lord. Praise Jesus. He's not like that. He's real. He's authentic, not in spite of his Christianity, but because of his Christianity, he's authentic and raw as well. Chapter 13, verse 15 he says these words. These are some of the most famous words that Job ever said. Though the Lord slay me, I will trust in him. But that's not all he says. And, you know, that's all we ever hear quoted. We, we, we never hear the, the sentence completed and the second half of the verse stated along with the first. Because when Job says, though he slay me, I will trust in him, right after that he says, yet I will argue my ways to God's face. And he does. 
And it's awkward, and it's clunky, and it's messy, and gutsy, and real, and raw, and honest. Throughout the book, Job, as the pressure goes, you know, is turned up on him, as his friends continue to accuse him, and not defend God, but get defensive about God, as if God needed their defense, as if God couldn't just be God in all the mystery of what it means to be God. They get defensive about God and start attacking Job. And and, and in the midst of all that, in the midst of losing his health and losing his wife and losing his children and losing everything, he, he starts at a certain point to vomit his feelings out to God. And at one point he says to God, you mock the despair of the innocent. Show yourself. You are being incongruent, or so it seems, with what you've always told us about you. So explain yourself. You ever pray like that? You ever read A Grief Observed by C.S. Lewis after his wife dies of cancer? And, you know, he says, go to God when, whenever, you know, when everything's going well in your life and everything's smooth and comfy cozy, and there he is, you know, complete access, you know, praise the Lord. But go to him when, when, when things are raw and when things are broken and falling apart and when death and mourning and crying and pain and suffering enter into the equation. And what do you get from God? You get silence. And then you get, it's, it's like you're thrown into an emotional casket and all you hear is the sound of bolting and double bolting from the outside. God is silent. He's gone. He's distant. There's this complete vomiting of the way that he feels after his, his excruciating loss of the wife that he loves. And some of us read that and say, ooh, is C.S. Lewis a Christian? Ooh, do you think that God is threatened by those kinds of words? Do you think for a moment that God is insecure or so narcissistic that He can't handle you expressing your feelings fully to Him, even inappropriately sometimes, as was the case with Job? as may have been the case at certain points with C.S. Lewis. But did you ever notice how saturated with protest the Psalms are? The prayer book, that, that, that book right in the middle of the Bible that God said, use this as the model for your prayers? And how every human emotion, the full range of human emotion is in there, including lament, including protest. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I pour out my complaint before God. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. My God, why have you forsaken me? Explain yourself. Answer yourself. Here's the difference between Job and Job's wife. Here's the difference between King David, who wrote most of these, and Job's wife. Job's wife's prayer ends with curse God and die. David's prayers, and in the end, Job's, end with humility, end with a rehearsal of the character attributes of God. See, Job's wife passes judgment on God based upon what she feels, whereas Job and David, in the end, pass judgment on their feelings on the basis of what they know about God. And that's what makes all the difference. That's what drives Job toward God in a way that the same circumstances drive Job's wife away from him. That's what drives Job, in the end, to love God even more than he did before the suffering in the same way that it drove Job's wife to love God less because of the suffering 
It's all about perspective. It's all about the interpretive grid. Get the feelings out. And God can handle it. You know, in the end, there was some correction that God had to do with Job. But, but after he corrected Job and Job humbled himself, God then immediately turns to Job's friends and says, you have spoken wrongly about me. You have not spoken rightly about me as my servant Job has. And so what God is recognizing is this, even though some of the things that Job had said toward God were an overreach, had stepped over the line, God knew the heart behind that protest that more than anything, what, what, God, what Job wanted from God was God's face, reacquaintance with the face of God and with the assurance that the chapter that he's living in right now is not going to be the last one. So that's what it says about Job. He's humble and he's raw. So what does it say about God? You know, Job has searched his heart. He's invited God to speak. God has returned that invitation with silence. And then Job Ask the rhetorical question in verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service, I would wait until my renewal should come. In other words, if there is a future that's bright, if there is a happily ever after, if in fact my best days, according to the promise of God, are ahead of me instead of behind me, and if, if I can have that assurance that I will one day wake from this living nightmare, that everything sad will come untrue, then I can endure this. I can endure this. You know, it's like, a, you know, the, the, the mother giving birth to a child. I, I will go through the most excruciating pain that, that, because I know what's promised on the other end of this, this horrific, you know, labor and de delivery experience. And she's willing to go through it. She's able to go through it. She has the, the strength to go through it because of what she believes that the future holds. And Job is saying the same thing. If the future is bright, I will go through anything. And furthermore, Lord Jesus, again, I will remember the suffering that your love put you through. And I will walk through the darkness and through the valley and through the fire if you want me to. And then Job has a thought. It's kind of odd. He starts thinking about a tree. And he says, there's even hope for a tree. You cut off the branch on a tree, the branch will grow back. You, you prune it, it actually becomes more beautiful and, and fruit-bearing than it ever had been before. And if there's hope for a tree to resurrect, if there's hope for a tree to, to, to sprout back after it's been cut and severed, then surely there's hope for the crown of creation, the human being, such as Job. And then his logic kicks in in verses 13 through 17. If a tree is revived, surely there is hope for a man like Job. You know, he's, he's, he's applying the logic of redemption. He's applying the logic of the future promises to his thinking, what if suffering was, in fact, only temporary for the people of God? What if I could die and live again? What if the nightmare really will end? Then I could endure this. Then I could have hope. So, then he gives us three gifts to consider and even to utilize to prepare our hearts for when, when the moment comes. You know, watching the Olympics, right? Usain Bolt, unbelievable, insane, freak of nature, right? <laughs> Do you think that that's the only time he runs? 
Do you think he goes through any preparation to be able to run like that? Yeah, there's natural talent. But every Olympic athlete, we know this, they spend, they spend their lives preparing for a 10-second moment. And it involves fatigue, it involves muscle pain, it involves rehabilitation, it involves a huge, you know, process that nobody sees to get them ready for that, you know, metal contending burst of 10 seconds of energy. Why would it be any different for the human soul? Healing wounds. We have to put suffering in the context of what God says about affliction in the life of those who are his kids. A human being, Job is saying, is just like a tree. Pruning leads to fruitfulness and beauty. Even Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, if there ever was one, right? Entered the world in, 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 in a trough or in a you know, bucket that animals, farm animals ate out of. That was how he was introduced in, into the world. He left the world on a trash heap, falsely accused, put to death by Pontius Pilate governor of Judea, lived the good part of his life in poverty, was isolated at his moment of greatest sorrow. His friends distanced themselves from him. His wife gives him a hard time, right? We're his bride. We spend a good part of the time more cynical about him than we do loving him. You know, Jesus, if there ever was a true Job, it's, it's Jesus Christ. But the Bible tells us that even Jesus, the perfect God-man, learned obedience through the things that he suffered. And so Paul writes from jail, I want to know that Christ. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection. Of course we all want that, to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, but there's a process that gets us there. And, Paul writes, the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him through death. Because no resurrection happens if there's not death and sorrow to precede it. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata has been in a wheelchair, paralyzed from the neck down since she was a teenager because of a, a diving accident in the Chesapeake Bay. And she's, I don't know, somewhere maybe in her late 50s, 60s. I'm not sure exactly how old she is now. But very recently, reflecting on her life in a wheelchair, she said these words, sometimes God allows what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Even secular thinkers understand this insight. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the, you know, the famous grief expert, said this, the most beautiful people are the ones who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle and loss, and have found their way out of those depths. What the Job story emphasizes to us is if, if, if the apex of our Christian experience is sitting in an air-conditioned room, comfy cozy with a Bible in our lap and a nice hot cup of, coffee, cup of coffee, and if that's the apex, if that's what we think about when we think about the apex of Christianity, that's an important moment, by the way. That's every morning for me. It's every morning of my life, drilling things in in a comfortable environment, but, but there's a purpose to that, to prepare for the uncomfortable environments that are bound to come, for the bad news that's, that's bound to come, for the sad stories that are bound to be told and to come true. 
You know, what the Job story tells us is the same thing that Jesus' story tells us, is that the, that the apex of the Christian experience happens on, on Calvary's hill on a cross. And when we deny ourselves daily and take, a, take up a cross and follow Him. So if, if I have lived nothing but a charmed, comfy, cozy life, then the cost of that charmed, comfy, cozy life is that I become a superficial person who is woefully unprepared to offer hope and compassion and sympathy and empathy to the person in front of me who's suffering. You know, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's, it's right there. We are able and empowered to comfort others with the comfort that we ourselves have received in our own affliction. The kindest souls are the ones who are acquainted with sorrow and with grief. There's another resource that we see in here, and it's, it, you could call it unfailing hope. Unfailing hope, it's the strength to endure present sorrow because of what you know is coming around the corner. And Job echoes that right here in verse 14. If a man dies, shall he live again? When the bottom falls out, can hope be renewed? And his answer is in chapter 19, verse 25, and he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with Him on the earth. I know, not I suspect, not I hope, not I wishful think, none of that. I know that my Redeemer lives and I will stand with Him on the earth. Though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see God. You know, Job is having a prophetic epiphany here. He's speaking resurrection talk ahead of time maybe not even realizing the fullness of what he's saying here. Job is, you know, believed by, by most scholars to be the oldest book in the Bible, written even before Genesis. And even Job is talking about what the, what the beloved Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13, that if, if Christ is not risen, Christians are the most pitiful people in the world. If the resurrection did not happen in time, space, history, we have no hope, and he's right but here we have Job, you know, looking down the corridors of history future in the same way that we can look down the corridors of history past and know that our Redeemer lives and that we will stand with Him on the earth and though our flesh be destroyed, though babies are buried, though businesses are lost, though terrorists attack, Though my flesh be destroyed, yet with my eyes I will see God. The very first time I prayed, I was six years old. I had no history of knowing anything about Jesus or God, no church experience, nothing like that. I was six years old, and I intuitively and instinctively prayed to a God that I'd never heard of. After my babysitter came in to my room uh, and delivered what she felt might be some bad news. And she told me that my parents were traveling back from, from a vacation, that she thinks that the airplane that just went down, the news is reporting that an airplane went down, she thinks my parents might actually be on the plane. So if you're a babysitter, don't ever do that. <laughs> don't ever do that to a kid, for real. So I started praying. Don't let it be true. 
Don't let it be true. Don't let it be true. Don't let it be true. It's desperate. And a couple hours later, the door opens, and it's my mom and dad walking in, and I feel like I'm getting them back. My living nightmare. I've just woken up from a living nightmare. I, I had dead parents, and now my parents are alive. And, and I'll tell you, you know, looking back, I'm 48 years old now. I look back on all my experiences with my parents. And those five minutes after they walk through the door, I think are the five minutes over the course of my whole life that I've enjoyed them more than any other period of time. Maybe it was a little bit of a foretaste of what Lewis says, that, that, that heaven, when we're there, heaven will work backwards and turn even agony into glory. That, that our ability to enjoy the new heaven and new earth actually is dependent on the suffering and the nightmares, the true ones, that we will get to wake up from, and that death will, will reverse. And, you know, like it says in Revelation 21, which was written on an exiled island by the only apostle that survived martyrdom, and yet he was exiled in his old age, the apostle John. All of these apostles lived the Job story, every one of them. And what does John write to us in the 21st chapter of Revelation? But this, then I saw down the corridors of future history a new heaven and a new earth coming down out of heaven from God. And a voice came to me from the throne saying, behold, behold. Coming down now out of heaven from God is, is the people of God prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for their husband, Jesus. The old order of things has passed away. Now everything is made new, and there will now forevermore be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And then he pauses. It's as if he's intuiting how we are processing that audacious promise perhaps suspecting that there's doubt and suspicion that it could be true. And he says, these words of mine, not pie in the sky, not fiction. These words of mine are trustworthy and true. We have the, the same resource that the Apostle John did when he wrote those words. We have the ability to look back in time on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who conquered death which enables us to look forward in time and, and, and to, to have the same perspective that Paul did in his own affliction in 2 Corinthians 4, where he says we fix our eyes not on the things that we see, not on the suffering, not on the terrorism, not on these things, we f because the things that we see, they're temporary. What we do is we fix our eyes on things that are unseen, because the things that are seen are temporary, the things that are unseen, eternal. Hanging our hat there, Put, putting our stake in the ground there. And then Job, lastly, gives us the gift of retrospect. What Job saw as a future possibility, we now see as an accomplished reality. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. We know even more than Job knew. We know that our Redeemer lives and that we will stand with Him. That little Matthew will stand with Him on the earth. And though our flesh be destroyed, yet with our eyes we will see God, because the happily ever after we've always ached for, it's true. 
You ever wonder why we're so drawn to fairy tales? You ever wonder why we get nostalgic when we've got a little child in our arms and they're, they're, they're full of wonder as we're reading Cinderella and the Slipper and the Prince or, you know, Beauty kisses the Beast and the Beast becomes a handsome prince. You know, all these stories, right? And the child is like, oh, wow, ah, and, 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 and they're treating it like it's real. And we sort of enter into that experience vicariously for a moment, getting nostalgic to those good old days when we were children, right? And we could believe things, that's, things that, that couldn't possibly be true, right? Those were the good old days when we could believe the fairy tale stories. What if the good old days are ahead of us instead of behind us? What if the good old days are yet to come? What if we are so drawn to happily ever after fairy tales still, not because they take us out of reality, but because they reintroduce us to reality. Yeah, when we come to this table in front of us, we remember His death. We remember His burial. We remember His resurrection. We remember the true Job the true victim of terror who lost the loyalty of his friends, who lost the unbridled affection of his bride, who was literally afflicted from head to toe with sores, and who cried out a prayer of protest in his hour of darkness, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The perfect prayer. And it's because of that perfect prayer. It's because Jesus did not get the happily ever after that we do. It's because it did not come true in that moment for him that it most certainly will come true for us on that day when he returns. Take heart because these words are trustworthy and true. Those things being said, please stand with me, and we will boldly profess why we are coming to this table. Why do we receive the Lord's Supper? Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and He broke it, saying, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after the supper, He took the cup, saying, this is my blood poured out for you. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Please be seated now as Pastor Russ and all the other pastors and elders and servers come forward as well.